Father in heaven, thank you so much that we have come to the end of the year and that we're even then now able to come and study the Word of God together. Thank you for preserving our life until this time. And Lord, as we continue our study in the parables of Jesus, I pray that you would guide us, help us to understand and decode the message that you have here in the scriptures for us please give us your holy spirit lord for he is the one that inspired these words at the very beginning that he would illumine our hearts and minds and teach us and to lead us into all truth and so father please guide us now we pray in jesus name amen well our parable for this evening is entitled without a wedding garment. And what was the background to this parable? What was the context that Jesus gave this parable in? You see, it was still a continuation of what Jesus was saying to the chief priests and the elders from the previous chapter. They wanted to know what authority Jesus had to teach and to preach and to heal and to do all that he, he, he was doing. And yet Jesus focused on their lack of fruits, their lack of ministry to all the people around them. Do you remember that? That even though it seemed like they had all the authority, they were very much destitute of the fruits of a true Christian, especially being in the position that they were in. So with that understanding, when they came to ask about the authority, Let's now jump into this parable and have a look at what it teaches without a wedding garment. We're starting here this evening in Matthew 22 verses 1 to 3. The Bible says, And Jesus answered and spake unto them again by parables and said, The kingdom of heaven is like unto a certain king, which made a marriage for his son, and sent forth his servants to call them that were bidden to the wedding, and they would not come. So a king makes a marriage for his son, and he wishes to furnish this wedding feast with guests. Of course, who would not want to have guests to celebrate such a, a happy and joyous occasion, right? And who does this king represent? It represents, he represents God the Father. And he wants to make a marriage for his son. A marriage feast. And who is this son? It is none other than Jesus Christ, right? Now, how about this wedding banquet though? What does this wedding feast represent? Let's look at Revelation 19 and verse 7. The Bible says, Let us be glad and rejoice and give honor to him, for the marriage of the Lamb is come, and his wife hath made herself ready. So Jesus is about to marry somebody. The Lamb of God is about to marry a wife. Who is this wife? Well, let's continue reading in Revelation 21 and verse 1. And I, John, saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down from God out of heaven, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. Friends, did you see what that bride is? Who is the wife of Jesus? The Bible says there that it is New Jerusalem. But you know, Jesus isn't marrying a city, right? So who is he marrying? Is You know, it sounds like it, New Jerusalem, right? But who is this New Jerusalem in a sense? Well, in Ephesians 5.25, the Bible says this, Husbands, love your wives, even as Christ also loved the church and gave himself 
for it. So friends, did you see that? Who is the bride? It is the church. And the church is not just any church building. It's not a city, New Jerusalem. But really, it is the people that are in it. It is a union of God to His people. It is a time when Jesus will be able to see His children, the sons and daughters of God, face to face again. In Ephesians chapter 1 and verse 9 to 10, this is what the Bible says about that time. Having made known unto us the mystery of His will, according to His good pleasure, which He hath purposed in Himself, that in the dispensation of the fullness of times, He might gather together in one all things in Christ, both which are in heaven and which are on earth, even in Him. God one day is going to gather everything together that is in heaven and that is on the earth. And friends, when will that take place? That is the second coming. That is when the marriage feast will take place, where heaven will rejoice, where Jesus will be happy to marry this bride and the people that are in it in New Jerusalem that were in the church on earth. Friends, Jesus, He is inviting, pardon me, God the Father is inviting people to come to this marriage supper of the Lamb to be ready at the second coming. And the wedding feast that God will hold one day will be up in heaven where we will be seated together. And I'm sure the tables will stretch so far that you will not be able to see to the end. But friends, we are going to celebrate one day in heaven at the second coming. But coming back to the parable, the king sends his servants to call people, to invite guests. Now, who are these servants? Who are the servants that the father sends out, the king sends out to invite people? Well, let's keep reading. In Amos chapter 3 and verse 7, the Bible says, Surely the Lord God will do nothing, but he revealeth his secrets unto his servants, who? The prophets. Did you see that, friends? The servants are the prophets, the prophets that God sends to to deliver a message, to, to, to invite people to this wedding feast. But you see, friends, it's not just the prophets that are considered God's servants. Who else? Let's read also in Ephesians chapter 4 and verse 11. And he gave some apostles and some prophets and some evangelists and some pastors and teachers. Do you see there? In this group with the prophets, there are actually five other groups of people that are mentioned. Apostles, evangelists, pastors, and teachers. And these are the people that God uses, not only just prophets, to call people to come to the marriage supper of the Lamb, to call into the kingdom of heaven. And friends, Right now, even now, as you sit here and you're listening, God is calling you to the marriage supper of the Lamb. But with what does He call us? What does the prophets use? How do they call us? And these teachers and these pastors and these evangelists, how is it that God calls us? What do the servants of God use? Let's go to 2 Thessalonians chapter 2 and verse 14. Whereunto He called you, by our gospel, to the obtaining of the glory of our Lord Jesus Christ. 
Do you see that, friends? God calls us by his gospel through the teaching and the preaching of the word of God, the Holy Scriptures. However, many people reject it. When the servants went out that were sent from the king, many people, they would not come. And they were busy, whatever reason they give, friends. I hope that is not the case this evening. For those that are listening, for those that are watching or even reading this today, what was the general reaction of the people in the parable? They were busy. They didn't want to come. They did not heed the invitation that God was using to call them through the prophets' use of the gospel, the holy scriptures today. And so, friends, I hope that is not the case this evening. That even as we have arrived at the end of the year, maybe your spiritual life has not been where it needs to be. But I pray that we would not put that call off any longer. But coming back to the parable, you see, the king, he hears that the people would not come. He hears that they have rejected the message. But what does the king do? He's not satisfied. He wants guests at this feast. He wants people saved. And so what does the king do? In Matthew 22 and verse 4, listen to this. Again, he sent forth other servants saying, Tell them which are bidden. Behold, I have prepared my dinner. My oxen and my fatlings are killed and all things are ready. Come unto the marriage. Friends, the king, he comes back with an even greater plea, an even greater desire. He tells the people what? The dinner is ready. Everything has been prepared. All they need to do is show up. And you know what's very interesting that the detail that is given in this passage here, right in this verse, it says what? The king said what? My oxen and my fatlings are killed. You know, friends, what is the significance of the oxen and the fatlings that are all killed already? You see, the sacrifice has already been made. The animal has been killed. Look at Jeremiah chapter 11 and verse 19. And look what the Bible says here. But I was like a lamb or an ox that is brought to the slaughter. And I knew not that they had devised devices against me, saying, Let us destroy the tree with the fruit thereof, and let us cut him off from the land of the living, that his name may be no more remembered. Do you see that at the very beginning of this passage, it says what? I was like a lamb or an ox. So really, the killing of the oxen was the same as the killing of the lamb. And that represents what? the death of Jesus Christ. It shows that, that God has done all His part already for us to be invited. The dinner is ready. The wedding is prepared. All that God could do, all that needed to be done, had already been done. His part in the plan of salvation had already been fulfilled. In fact, He could do no more to save us. All that could have been done on God's part to save us had already been done. His servants even were sent to invite to the dinner, but many people would not come. Friends, could you see that even today, there's a part for us to play in the plan of salvation? It's not a big part. 
It's very insignificant. We don't need to prepare or to help prepare the wedding. We don't need to make the decorations. We don't need to bring any gift. All we need to do is be willing to come, to show up, to turn up, to be present at this dinner. But even after all of this, how do the people respond in this parable? Let's keep reading, shall we? Matthew 22, verses 5 to 6. But they made light of it and went their ways, one to his farm, another to his merchandise, and the remnant took his servants and entreated them spitefully and slew them. They made light of it. What does that mean? It means that they neglected it or they didn't even regard it. They were occupied with their farms and their merchandise, like how we get occupied with many of our own things today, like work and studies and hobbies and traveling here and there and fixated on our computers and our phones, watching movies and just constantly on social media. And yet there were others. The Bible says there, back in Matthew, it says that the remnants, they took the servants and killed them. Why? Maybe they didn't want to be disturbed. Maybe they didn't like the message that the servants were bringing, that if they wanted to come to the wedding feast, that they would have to leave behind all their worldly possessions and their belongings, that it would actually require a sacrifice if they wanted to come to this wedding feast. And so many of them, they stayed away, and others, they even killed the servants that the king sent. And upon hearing this, hearing that not only the people didn't want to come, but they even took their servants and they slew them, they killed them. How did the king react then on hearing that sort of news? Well, let's keep reading Matthew 22, verses 7 to 10. But when the king heard thereof, he was wroth. And he sent forth his armies and destroyed those murderers and burned up their city. Then saith he to his servants, The wedding is ready, but they which were bidden were not worthy. Go ye therefore into the highways, and as many as ye shall find, bid to the marriage. So those servants went out into the highways, and gathered together all, as many as they found, both good and bad, and the wedding was furnished with guests." On hearing that the people had rejected the invitation, and not only that, but they took it a step further, but they took those servants and and killed the servants of the king. Upon hearing this, the king was angry. And it says that he went out with his armies and destroyed the murderers and burnt their city. Friends, we've looked at this already in the previous week. What does the burning of the city represent with those armies? It represents how Jerusalem and its temple and the city was destroyed by the Roman armies in AD 70, when Titus would come and destroy everything and raise everything and not even a single brick, not even a single stone would be left on top of another. This means, friends, that the people that were being invited to the wedding feast at the very beginning were the Jews. They represent the Jews. And how would you know this? You see, because after they rejected the message and after the king destroyed their city, the king would send out his servants again and invite other people. 
those that were in the highways, all that were good and bad. It was an open invitation to everybody, which means the previous invitation was not open to everybody. And at the very beginning, we see that God called a very specific subset and group of people. God began with Abraham. He called him to the marriage feast, that it would be through him and his descendants that they would go out to all the world and call others, to invite others. And God, he blessed him. And he, in turn, had to come around and be a blessing to the whole world. That was the wedding invitation that they were to be. But what happened? You see, the Jews got all caught up in their own world, in their own lives. They forgot the reason why God called them at the very beginning, to the point that they killed even their own prophets. And Jesus himself said it. Look at this, Matthew 23. Verse 31, Wherefore, ye be witnesses unto yourselves, that ye are the children of them which killed the prophets. Do you see that? Jesus is the very one that tells them, you were the ones that were responsible for killing your own prophets, the ones that God had sent to invite you to this wedding feast. And at the very end, they would kill the Son of God himself. And yes, Jesus at this time, He wasn't dead yet. He was standing right there before them, telling them these parables. But you know what's so interesting? Jesus read the thoughts of their own hearts, even as they were plotting in the background to murder Jesus, to come up with a plot and a plan to try to get rid of him. Jesus is saying, you're going to kill me one day. He could read the thoughts of their own hearts, and yet that didn't even sway or turn them from their murderous designs. And so, they would be the ones that would be responsible for killing the Son of God Himself. And that's why a short 30 plus years later, God would send the Roman armies to surround the city of Jerusalem, to besiege it, and eventually to destroy it. And the gospel would be sent to all the world. The gospel would go out to the Gentiles and they would become the inheritors of the promise that God gave to Abraham at the very beginning. And so, you know, as we come back to this parable, the parable actually does not end here. Do you remember the, the title of our parable is what? Without a wedding garment. So although the, the wedding is furnished with guests, it does not mean that everyone has a right to enter. You see, at the very end of this parable, we're going to see what? That who would be the ones that would actually be qualified to go into this wedding feast? Do you remember that as the king sent out an invitation, as the the people rejected it and, and he destroyed their city, he sent out another invitation, go into the highways and invite everybody. And the wedding was furnished with guests, both what? Good and bad. And the question that we have to ask ourselves this evening is this. How do we know if we are the good or the bad? How do we know? You see, everybody that turned up to this wedding feast, not all were qualified. Not all were allowed to remain. There would be a certain group of people that was bad that turned up that would be cast out. And you know, most of us, if not all of us, are the result of the gospel going out to everybody. We are the benefactors of God rejecting the Jews and destroying the city 
we are the Gentiles, not the Jews. But does it simply mean that we are saved? No, right? It does not automatically mean that we are on the side of good. Both good and bad came. And then, so, as we continue this parable, what we're going to see is this, in the second section, what the parable deals with in terms of how do we know if we are good or bad? How can we be good? And this is an important fact because until we get to, to, to the point of the second coming, the church on earth will always be filled with good and bad people. Until Jesus Christ comes for a second time, the church will be filled with good and bad. There's other parables that talk about this. The, the, the field has wheat and tares, weeds and wheat, the good and the bad. They will grow together until the end of time. So how do we know whether we are the good or whether we are the bad? So even though you go to church, it doesn't mean that you are good. There are many people that make the habit of going to church, but it doesn't necessarily mean that they are good. It just means that they were taught good habits since young. They're going to church out of peer pressure. They have very many different reasons as to why they go and to turn up to church. And this is a very important note, friends, because it means that we should not look at the people on this earth. The church of God is full of faulty people. We should look to Jesus as our example alone. Amen? That's who we should look at. We must make sure that we keep our eyes firmly fixed on Jesus. Don't even look at the pastor as your example. And it's, it's easy to say, but what I don't want you to happen is that you get so disappointed in the people that are in the church that you forget the truth and you just leave the truth, the, the church itself, because of the people. Now, friends, I'm not trying to get myself out of uh, being an example to everyone else. We need to, at the very best of our ability, to be a good example to everybody. Make sure we don't become a stumbling block to anybody. But on the other hand, friends, remember, remember, the church on earth will always be full of wheat and tares. And we cannot use any one person for our example. We should not point them out and say, ah, this is the reason why I'm allowed to do this. And even it might be against the word of God or full of sin. We should not use that as an excuse. Jesus is our example. He's the only one that we should ever look to. And so friends, what is the dividing line between good and bad? The righteous and the wicked. How do we know? After we've heard the gospel, after we've accepted Christ into our hearts, it seems, how can we make sure that we are the good and not the bad? Well, let's go to Matthew 22, 11 to 14. Here is that second part of the section of this parable. Matthew 22, 11 to 14. And when the king came in to see the guests, he saw there a man which had not on a wedding garment. And he saith unto him, Friend, how camest thou in hither? not having a wedding garment, and he was speechless. Then said the king to the servants, Bind him hand and foot, take him away, cast him into outer darkness. There shall be weeping and gnashing of teeth, for many are called, but few are chosen. Friends, did you see this? 
It's so simple, isn't it? How do we know if we are good or bad? You see, it depended upon who wore the wedding garment. If you had a wedding garment on, then you were safe. If not, then you would be cast out. The bad person does not wear the wedding garment. And of course, in contrast, those that were good were the ones who had the wedding garment on. So I want you to notice this, friends. This is really important. Both were invited. Both came to the wedding feast. But the only difference is one had the wedding garment on and the other did not. And so the question is simple. What does this garment represent? What does it represent? Revelation chapter 19 and verse 8. And to her was granted that she should be arrayed in fine linen, clean and white, for the fine linen is the righteousness of saints. Did you see that, friends? What does that fine linen that we wear represent? It is the righteousness of the saints. And it's not just any garment, friends. It's not anything that we can bring from our own house by our own selves to the wedding garment, uh, to the wedding feast. How do I know? Well, look at Romans chapter 3, verse 10. As it is written, there is none righteous, no, not one. The Bible says that there is what? None righteous. Not a single one of us is righteous. Not a single one of us have any righteousness. Our garments are like filthy, dirty rags. Why? Because all of us have sinned and come short of God's glory. That's the same chapter, just verse 23 of Romans chapter 3. You know what that means, friends? The man that came into the wedding feast that didn't have any wedding garment, he wasn't at fault because he was too poor to buy one. He wasn't at fault because he was too poor to make one. He wasn't at fault because he didn't have any nice clothes to, to wear to this wedding feast, okay? So it wasn't any fault of his own, personal, he was too poor, he came from the wrong background. No, friends, it's not that. What was his fault then? Let's have a look at another text on righteousness. Remember, our righteousness is like filthy rags. All of us, we have, there's none righteous, no, not one. So what is our fault? Well, in 1 John 2, 1, who is righteous here? My little children, these things write I unto you, that ye sin not. And if any man sin, pardon me, if any man sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous. So friends, what does the wedding garment represent? It represents the righteousness of the saints, but really we have no righteousness of our own. It is the righteousness of Jesus Christ. We're not capable of being righteous on our own. So Jesus, He's the one that is righteous, and He's the one that gives us His righteousness. It's His perfect life that He lived, His perfect obedience. While He lived on this earth, He never ever for one second ever entertained sin. That's why He could die for you and me 
only a perfect sacrifice could die for you and me. Can you imagine? We're, we're in prison, all of us. We're all guilty. We're all sinners, right? And, and the, the murderer next door to me says, hey, I'll die for you. He can't do that because he's not perfect. He's guilty like me. He can't pay a penalty for sin like me, because uh, for me, because the wages of sin is death. And if he deserves death and I deserve death, he can't die for me. He's dying for his own sins already. Jesus was the only one that came, lived a perfect life, lived a righteous life, had this righteousness of his own that he could give to you and to me. And so friends, how do we get this garment of righteousness? Romans chapter 13, verse 14. But put ye on the Lord Jesus Christ and make not provision for the flesh to fulfill the lusts thereof. Did you see that, friends? The Bible says we have to put on Jesus Christ like a garment because we're putting on His righteousness. Jesus is righteous, and if He is righteous, we got to, we're putting Him on, we got to be covered with His righteousness. Jesus offers His righteousness to us, full and free. We could never earn it. All we can do is accept it. All we can do is put it on. So the fault of the man at the wedding feast who did not have a wedding garment on, his fault was not because he was too poor, not because he didn't have any good clothes at home. His fault was when he came to the wedding feast and the wedding garment was offered out to him full and free, he said, no, I'm okay, thanks. And he decided to go into the wedding feast with his own dirty, filthy rags on him. It was free. He didn't have to pay for it. He was given a free invitation. He turned up. He was about to eat a free meal. But in order to do that, he had to put on the free garment. So he was offered it free, but he just denied it and walked in with his own filthy clothes. Friends, how do we put on Christ today? How? How can we be covered with the righteousness of Christ? You know, this garment is free and there's nothing you can do to earn it. Does turning up to a wedding feast mean like, oh, I worked? No. Of course, it's a bit of a journey. You got to walk there. You got to get there. You know, you got to accept the invitation that there is a willingness to want to be there, right? There's these conscious decisions that we have to make. And even today, if we want the righteousness of Christ, if we want to be saved, we got to make conscious decisions to say, yes, I'm going to take this righteousness. Yes, I'm going to go to that wedding feast. Yes, I'm going to put this garment on. But friends, how do we put this garment on? Let's go to another text. Ephesians chapter 4, 20 to 24. Now look at this. This is a little bit complicated, but it's also quite simple at the same time. Let's see if you can catch it. But ye have not so learned Christ. If so be that you have heard him, and you've been taught by him as the truth is in Jesus, that ye put off concerning the former conversation, the old man, which is corrupt according to what? Deceitful lusts be renewed in the spirit of your mind, and that you put on the new man, which after God is created in righteousness 
and true holiness. So at the very end of this verse here, in verse 23 and 24, you see clearly that we have to put on the new man, which is created in righteousness and true holiness. But in order to do that, what do we have to do? You see, in the earlier verses, it states there in verse 20, we haven't learned Christ, right? But if we have learnt about Him, we've been taught about Him from where? Verse 21, taught about Him from the truth, the truth as it is in Jesus, then the result is what we would find in verse 22 and 23. We would put off the former conversation of the old man that's corrupt, and we'd be renewed in the spirit of our mind. You see that word conversation there, friends? It doesn't mean just talking. The word conversation, it means conduct or manner of life, our behavior, our deportment. And so if we would learn from Christ, then what? Our life would be different. Now, friends, this is an elementary question. A simple question. What needs to be changed first? Our behavior or our mind? The answer is obvious, right? Our minds. Our minds need to be changed first. And the putting on of righteousness is evident then in our lives. How we live our life should be different. Yes, our behavior, our actions, the things we do, and yes, even the things we say. It'll be obvious. Those are the outward, our behavior, our conversation of life, right? But before that has to happen, or before that can happen, our minds need to be changed first. They must be renewed. How? By the truth. That's what it said there. That's what it said there in verse 21. If you've heard and been taught by Him as the truth that is in Jesus. When that happens, friends, our experience, our actions, our lives will be totally different because our desires will be different. Our purposes, our motives, the the drive, uh, and our minds, it it would all be different. Friends, this must take place. This must change first before anything on the outward can change. Sometimes we try to change the outward too quickly without realizing that what? Only the truth can set a person free, free from sin, free from their old lives, free from everything that had chained them to this world before. If you're not teaching the truth, but you're expecting people to change, then that really is salvation by works because you want them to attempt an impossibility. You want them to change, but all have sinned. There's none righteous. How can you make them righteous and and make them live a righteous life and do right things and, and have right doing in their lives if their minds are not changed? If our minds are not changed. We are attempting an impossibility. We are proving, and we're going to prove, what man has proved for the past 6,000 years of our existence, that man without the truth, man without God, man without the righteousness of Christ in our lives, we can never be righteous. We'll always be wicked. We'll always be evil. Even though we might stop for a little while, right? Eventually, we'll end up sinning. You see, friends, it is the truth, the Bible, that will change us. And Jesus is that way and truth and life. Friends, these two things cannot be separated. These two things, righteousness and truth, they go hand 
in hand. Now coming back to the parable, it means that this person that that heard the gospel invitation, that came to the wedding feast, he never allowed the truth to change his heart, his mind, and ultimately his life. It's possible, friends, to go to church and yet never have an interaction with Jesus Christ ourselves personally. We can get caught up with all the forms and have, have the truth seemingly and, and you know memorize John 3.16 for God to love the world, but it never takes hold of our heart. We never spend time in it. And we know because this is simply evident in our lives. We go to church, but then the other six days, we live like the rest of the world. We lie, we cheat, we steal. We can't give up our addictions. We're just addicted to the world and everything around it. We just can't change. We're addicted to sin. So our conduct is no different from that of the world. The way we speak is no different from that of the world. But you know, when the disciples, they spent time with Jesus, people realized it. Oh, your speech was even different. When Peter was trying to deny Christ, he he said it with such nice words. At the end, he had to try to prove that he was different. He swore. But that that wasn't the language of Christ. That's not what Christ taught him for three and a half years. But he had to go out of his way to prove that he wasn't. And he cursed. And it was evident that he did not have Jesus abiding in his heart. That's why Jesus said to him before he died, Peter, when you're converted, strengthen the brethren. He wasn't converted yet. He was seemingly doing all these right things. He was, quote unquote, trying to live the life of a a true Christian, but he, he couldn't. It was a burden. And when it came time for him to really stand out to be counted, he denied Christ. Friends, we need an experience today in the truth that will be consistent enough to change us and transform us and renew our minds. Look, this is what the truth does. Let me show you. Psalms 119, verses 9 to 10, the Bible says this. Wherewithal shall a young man cleanse his way? How do we clean our, 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 our actions, our way, our paths? By taking heed thereto according to thy word. With my whole heart have I sought thee. Oh, let me not wander from thy commandments. You see, friends, if we seek God with our whole heart, if we really put effort into it, if we really come to study the word of God and treasure it and and memorize it and put it there, the Bible says that our way will be cleansed and that, what? We wouldn't wander from his commandments. Look at the very next verse, verse 11, Psalms 119, verse 11. Thy word have I hid in my heart. If we hide the word of God in our hearts, what's the result? That I will not sin against thee. You see that, friends? If we put the word of God here, it will cleanse us. It will change us. It will empower us because those words are inspired. Those words are the words of God. And that word became flesh. Those words embedded upon the human heart, it will become flesh through the human life. And Jesus will be found and seen living in the life of that Christian if we put the word of God there. Let's look at another text. Verse 33 of Psalms 119. Teach me, O Lord, the way of thy statutes. If we are taught the way of the statutes, I shall keep it to the end. You know, so many times we, want, we, we look at the preacher or the teacher and say, oh, don't tell me anymore, don't tell me anymore. Uh, uh, then it's more for me to learn. 
more for me to apply, more for me to live. I don't want to know anymore, God. I don't want to know anymore. But not realizing that the words that were taught, the words that are being preached to you, the more that we can read and understand the Word of God, the more we listen to the words of the preacher preaching the Word of God, it empowers us to live it. The more time we spend meditating on it, the more time we spend listening to it, the more time we hide the Word of God in our hearts, we will keep it. We'll keep it. We won't sin. We'll be righteous. One more text. Psalms 119. 133, you can see that the Psalms 119 is full of these types of passages. Order my steps in thy word and let not in any iniquity have dominion over me. Order our steps where? In the word of God. If we will just come to the word of God to read, to study, to spend time in it, I'm telling you friends, iniquity will not have dominion over any of us. If we would spend time in the Word, if we would spend time reading it, digesting it, memorizing it, letting it embed into our hearts and minds. We just got to come and read. That's all we got to do. What? Reading is going to transform me and change me? Yes. If you read the Word of God, if you read the truth, yes, if you spend time in it, you will change. There is nothing that we can do to earn righteousness. All you need to do is read your Bible and read it enough that it will change you. You've got to spend enough time in it though. You've got to give it your attention. Doesn't it sound so simple? That's not salvation by works. You're not working your way to heaven by just reading the Bible. I mean, really? I can do that? That's all? Yeah, you read the gospel invitation. And not only does God invite you, but with the very same gospel, He empowers you to live for Him. You want to change life, friends? Read the Bible. You want to overcome a bad habit, friends? Read the Bible. You want to stop cursing and swearing? Read the Bible. You want to stop being a lazy person? Read the Bible. You want to be righteous? Spend time in the Word of God. Read the Bible. You know, friends, the parable ends with these somber words. We read already, but let's rehash it. Matthew 22, verse 14. For many are called, the Bible says, but what? Few are chosen. Many are called, but few are chosen. Friends, why are so few chosen today? It's not because God doesn't want to choose us. But we didn't choose Him. We neglected Him. Just like all, how all the people at the beginning of the parable chose to focus on their farms, on their merchandise. Many of us today even are choosing God's Word. Pardon me. The world above God's Word. We are the ones that make the choice at the end. You see, the king... He says, what? The dinner's ready. My oxen and my fatlings are killed. Just come. But many of the people chose not to even come. Many people don't even give the gospel a chance to work in their life before they give up on it. But yet there are some that come. But they came for all the wrong reasons. They come and they're at church, but they're not spending time 
in the Word of God. Jesus says, you're right here. Even now, won't you spend time with me? Won't you spend time with me in the Word? Won't you allow my Word to be written upon your heart, to empower you and change you, to live for me? Won't you just spend that time with me? And friends, you know, this is that season. And I say season because the year is about to end, but this is that season where people make all these New Year's resolutions. But friends, if you've seen it to the end of this year, you ought to thank God because many people have passed away from COVID, from natural disasters, even with a recent flooding here in Malaysia. Friends, there are so many people that are passing off of Earth's history and the stage of action, even at this very minute and second as we are studying and we're learning and listening together. But friends, God has spared your life until now. And He's saying, won't you come? Won't you spend time with me? Won't you give me a chance to work in your life? It's a free gift. It's a free gift that God is waiting to give you and me. And friends, in this Christmas season, as families are gathering together, as It falls on a Sabbath, a holy Sabbath. Let's not forget God in the midst of all of this. Let's not forget to spend time in His Word. Let's not forget that Jesus, even today, is inviting you for the gospel never knows any season. It takes no break, but Jesus, even today, is in the business of inviting His sons and daughters. Won't you give me a chance? Won't you come and spend time with me? in your word, in the word of God, my word, pardon me. That's what God is saying today. Let's not forget. And today, let's choose time in God's word with Jesus over anything else on this earth today, whether it's your spouse, your girlfriend and your boyfriend, or or, or your investments, or your studies, the desires of our heart that uh, are not inclined to the spiritual things. Let's ask God, God, help me. Help me today. Will you be willing, as I pray for you, and pray for myself as well, that God would create with His Word a clean heart in each of us today, and a desire and a love for spiritual things, especially the Word of God. Let us pray. Father in heaven, thank you so much for this parable. Thank you for reminding us your great love and how you're inviting everybody that salvation is full and free, that you died for everybody on that cross. Lord, help us to come back to your word today. We hear it so much, but so often we allow the world to just sweep us away and we have no time for your word. And we're just a hollow shell full of the world and nothing of the righteousness of Christ. Many of us, we we lack power in our lives. We we lack conviction. We lack change. We We lack your Holy Spirit. Father, please, today, help us to recommit. This evening, help us to spend that precious quality time with you. Lord, please, help us to see that you're waiting for us to take that first step. You've done all that you could already, but now you're waiting for us. God, please, empower us today to choose you. Help us to put aside our temptations. 
Help us to come and spend time in your word today. For we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. This media was brought to you by Audioverse, a website dedicated to spreading God's word through free sermon audio and much more. If you would like to know more about Audioverse, or if you would like to listen to more sermons, please visit www.audioverse.org.